Welcome to the Expert Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. Welcome to the fifth in the series of webinars sponsored by the Palm Beach County Medical Society on issues related to mental health and the coronavirus. This was recorded on June 4th, 2020. Thank you. Welcome to the Physician and Healthcare Professionals Mental Health Virtual Meeting. This is a recurring presentation of the Palm Beach County Medical Society's COVID-19 Response Task Force. I'm Dr. Brent Schollinger here along with Dr. Abby Strauss. Good evening, Abby. Good evening, Brent. Tonight's topic is a focus, hospice, and palliative care in the COVID pandemic setting question that we'll be asking right from the start is how can medicine's most compassionate arm thrive? Our special guests tonight are Samantha Brooker, who's Director of Social Work and Support Services, Kathy Diamond, who's Vice President for Clinical Care. I think I got those titles correct. And they both come to us from the Old Colony Hospice and Palliative Care, Massachusetts. Welcome. Thanks for having us. The first question, just jumping in there, in, in this pandemic times. What's going on on the hospice level? Are you guys extraordinarily busy? Are we seeing a lot more admissions, a lot more deaths? It's been extraordinarily busy for us. In the month of April, we broke, we shattered all of our previous records for admissions. Normally, we were aiming for about 70 admissions a month to our program, and we had 100. So that's a very significant increase. We also shattered our record for deaths. Patients were with us a very short period of time, very acutely ill, really short length of stay, very difficult, heartbreaking situations. It's very hard to help someone to, you know, to help their family, to wrap their head around what's coming. When you have a month, you can prepare them. When you have a week, maybe you can prepare them, but not you know, a day or two or three. It's really not enough time to, to give them the tools that they need to reframe it into something, a life journey that they're going to cope with. With the extraordinarily busy levels that you described, was your facility and your staff working at capacity or beyond capacity? I would say we were, yeah, we were stretched. We were at to the limit. We were okay. We had enough staff. We were well-staffed to begin with, and things changed. So we saw a lot more patients in the hospital setting, and we saw a lot more patients at home, and almost none in nursing homes or assisted livings after a short period of time. We did see them at the beginning, but then it was all the shutdown of even letting us in. A lot of the nursing homes did not want anyone in their building for quite some time, and that's still happening. A different scenario in which you were operating. Definitely. Absolutely. We're used to being able to go out and have those one-on-one conversations with families and really have that personal touch with them and interaction and explain the whole scenario of what they're seeing. It was really challenging that we didn't really know what to expect when it first started. So it's kind of hard to set a family up for what's to come when we don't quite know. It was It's so new to everybody. Hard to give them answers when you don't know yourself. Right. A lot of uncertainty. If someone has moved into a nursing home and hospice would normally go in, then during the latter part of their life, they did not have the benefit? It varied from nursing home to nursing home, but say 99% of them did not let us in there. So we were doing a lot of telehealth visits, using the iPads, and really relying on the staff at the facility to help communicate with us and tell us what was going on so we could still give recommendations. But we really weren't able to give the whole array of services that we normally give. We couldn't have the chaplains in there, the social workers, the aides. 
it was very limited if they allowed the nurse in. I would imagine it was very heart-rendering, not only for the family, but for the whole package that you bring to the facility. When you would go in and you'd be called, how did you approach it? How did you approach the family? How did you give them some some support. What did you do? It must have been doubly hard because it also has to be done in two dimensions and not the third dimension. We were very creative. Maybe the social worker would go to the family's home and have the one-on-one conversation with the family in their home, and then the nurse would go to the facility and be there to provide the support within the building. We had families that would come to the office, of course, with great PPE and social distancing, which also made it challenging too. We were just really creative with it to be able to provide that support. Lots of phone calls, sending them letters, different things to the family so that they still felt supported. One of the things that has always struck me about hospice is that there's the patient, but there's the family. And they are two equal entities from what I've seen. Probably, I mean, you have the mechanical issues of taking care of the patient who's dying, the nursing care and, and that which is necessary. A lot of them are very Though they be dying, they're still very lucid and still communicate with them. And so they didn't feel that they were alone by the staff and by their families because the staff was always there. The difference is how did you handle it and how the emotional reaction of the hospice people not being able to do what is part of your goal and your soul? One thing that we did was Sam's team has been holding support meetings there for staff to talk about their experience. A common theme that has come up is they feel very guilty that they're not able to do what they want to do, what they normally do, what they feel that the patient and family needs because of the restrictions. A big part of hospice is just presence. Sometimes in the medical setting, everything is so quick and we're always trying to fix things. In hospice, it's just being. It's sometimes just holding somebody's hand, being that person, just to be there with them. And that has been lacking the past few months because of this. And that's something that our staff has really struggled with. They're used to going above and beyond, sometimes being the family for people who don't have families to visit them and not being there. They felt very guilty about. Are they becoming emotionally exhausted or are they doing doing okay. They seem to be doing okay. And I think as an organization, we do a really great job of recognizing that our staff, they're humans too. We do a great job of balancing work-life balance and being able to see that maybe this staff member, they had a lot of deaths this week. It has been a lot for them. Let's give them some time off or offer them the support group. So we've really just tried to support each other and give a space that people can come to and feel supported to be able to share the sadness that they're feeling and worries. It's not just at work. It's COVID all the time at work. Everybody's afraid. Staff is very afraid and they feel guilty about that. They're afraid that they're going to get it. They're afraid they're going to bring it home. They're afraid they're going to give to the next patient. And when they go home, it's not like COVID isn't a thing in the world too. So it's a problem everywhere. Sounds like a lot of times working at the facility might actually feel that they're failing their patients since they're not delivering the same level of care that hospice is basically known for. Right. It is very dependent on the situation. We had one story and I I didn't meet the patient. I didn't meet the family, but I can't get the scenario out of my head of a, a woman who called our intake office. Her father was not terminally ill the week before and he got COVID-19 and he did not want treatment. He did not want to go to the hospital. He did not want to be intubated and he clearly wasn't doing well. So he came onto our service and very quickly passed away at home, you know, just a matter of days. Within a week, she called us back to admit her mother. 
at that time that we admitted her mother to our service, she had developed the illness herself. And it had been brought into the house by her husband, who worked at a nursing home. How does, how does a family get past something like this? We were able to go there physically, the nursing staff, but missing the physical presence of the other components. We did what we could, but it is, it's not the entire array of services. And this family would have needed a lot of services. Like your hands are tied. You have hospice facility, you have hospice out into other nursing facilities, into the hospital, into patients' homes. Can you give us a little picture as to what it is like now? What was it like before COVID? We care for patients in whatever their home setting is. So we have a hospice home, which is six beds. We have, we see people in nursing homes, assisted livings, and their home. Um, currently, our hospice home does not have any COVID-19. We have not had it there. Still seeing it though, still coming up in the hospitals. There, we're still having referrals for patients that are COVID-19 positive. About 70% of our patients live in their own homes in the community. Generally, how your organization operates? It might be more about 60. We are down in our nursing home. More home care and more assisted living. Generally, it's about 60-40. When someone is thought to be a candidate for a hospice, is there a criteria? Is there a sense that they have to be expected not to live for a certain period of time. What's, what's the criteria for people who don't know for admission to a hospice? Medicare sets the eligibility for hospice. The whole benefit is based on Medicare standards, Medicare conditions of participation. And Medicare says that a person should have about a six-month prognosis, six months or less, should their disease follow the normal progression expected with only palliative type care. Very difficult to predict that. So sometimes you have patients who might be living for two or three years. Not as common, but it, ha it does come up sometimes. I had a conversation with a patient of mine recently who was telling me about how her father had gotten to a, what she thought was calling it a hospice program, but it was one where he was still being treated for his underlying illness. So is there, is there different levels? There's hospice level, then there's a palliative care managed by hospice facilities. Are, are those two different levels of care? They are. And then hospice is completely palliative. The only interventions are focused or all the interventions are focused towards comfort. For instance, you might have radiation treatment to, to bone metastases in your spine because that will ease your pain. Palliative, not going to affect your prognosis. So that would be allowable. Intravenous chemotherapy might not be allowable if it might also alter the prognosis. To clarify, through a hospice facility such as yours, do they offer different levels of care, like specific things that Medicare would recognize as hospice care, another level of care, which would be palliative care? Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. And then there's level of cares within hospice, believe it or not. To confuse everyone. Right, right, right. <laughs> Last night was a call we did with the League of Women Voters, and there was a gentleman there from Blue Cross who basically has some fancy title, but is a lobbyist. You know, I asked him the question. I said, you know, in this era, the only people who are comfortable in terms of thinking that most of their health care is going to get taken care of is people who have Medicare or VA or some other government. And even that is not perfect. Do we sense that with what's going on, what people are going through, that there's going to be a move towards some type of more push for like a universal coverage so we don't have to figure out all these little games so that people can get the health care that they need? 
That'd be great. In our state anyways, there's no co-pays or out-of-pocket expenses for a COVID-19 test. I think it's seen it, you know, as a public health thing and all insurers have to pay for it. But if you don't have insurance, there's no charge either. But if someone needs hospice care and they don't have insurance, what do you do? How do you help them? Are there sliding scales? Yeah. So someone need not worry that their family member who needs hospice is not going to get the services. In the state of Massachusetts, all the insurance providers have to provide some hospice benefit. It doesn't necessarily have to be sort of the Cadillac plan that Medicare prescribes, but they do have to offer something. And most of the commercial payers offer something that's exactly like Medicare. Because our organization is a not-for-profit, community-based, we're just not affiliated, we don't do anything else, we just do hospice and palliative care, we do also take patients without insurance at all. We didn't have to worry about that at the end of life. What also just captures me is the whole notion that when I was working in hospices, families could come anytime. They could spend as much time as they want. They could bring their grandmother chocolate milkshake. They could do it. And now everything is two-dimensional and by schedule. What sort of feedback, how are you helping families deal with all this? And I I preface it by a thought that came to me this week. So this, this is the week of the third anniversary of my mother's passing. And I was thinking that if she was in hospice now, don't tell me that I can't be with her. My, my better sense would say, yes, of course, I can for a lot of reasons. But emotionally, to know that my mom is over there and I can't just sit next to her. Do people talk about that to you? And how does your staff handle it? It's, it's terribly, it's, it's a difficult thing. Our social workers and chaplains are spending a lot of time with family, providing that support to them. And we're really fortunate that we do have our hospice home and we have allowed visitors throughout this entire time. With some restrictions, we've been very cautious. We had a patient at an assisted living facility. She was transitioning. Her daughter was visiting her every day and visiting her outside her window and really watching her struggle with her symptoms. Many years ago, she made a promise to her mom that her mother would never die alone. She promised her she would be there. She would hold her hand. And as we know, even in the best circumstances, we can't guarantee that you'll be there that moment. Somebody could step out of the room and that's when it happens. But we do our best to help families prepare for that. And if that's what their wishes are, that's what we try to do. So in this circumstance, the family did have the the funds to have her moved to the home. And we were able to get her moved over there. Her daughter and her son were able to be at her bedside. The priest was not able to visit due to things coming from the Pope that they weren't allowed to go in. He was over 60, wasn't able to not be out of quarantine. So he called and on speakerphone, he gave his blessing with the family holding her hand and she died peacefully with them right there, honoring her wish to be with her at that time. Pretty good closure for the family in that situation. And what I like to hear and sad that I'm hearing it is that what you folks are doing is as on the ground, touching reality. Most of us watch the things that's going on in the hospitals, and God bless them, and they deserve applause, and that's that's just good. But you're at that particular moment in the human experience. Thank you for that. I just, how hard is it on you folks to go home and say, not an easy day? What is it doing to you folks? 
I was in the home when this woman passed and to see the look on her family's face and to know how relieved that they were, that they were there with her. I don't think there was a dry eye in the room. It was certainly challenging for us too, because we're used to the families getting ready to leave. We want to walk over, give them a big hug, embrace them, tell them that we're here for them. And we were kind of on one side of the room and they were on the other. And we had to say our goodbyes and our condolences from across the room. But knowing that we were able to have her fulfill her last wish, it, it was enough for all of us. And I would say for our staff, we continue to provide twice a week. We have support groups that are led by our social workers and our chaplains to provide a space for them to come and share those feelings. We are regularly checking in with them, offering one-on-one -on -one time if that's something that they need to just let it all out, a safe place to just share how you're feeling because we're all in the same boat and we're there to support one another. One of the mandates of Medicare, if it still exists, is the, I think they call it the fifth, the fifth armor. Now I'm, I'm sloppy, I don't remember the exact name, but it's to provide mental health services, counseling services, pastoral services, whatever, for approximately a year after the death. Is that still around? Yes. So we provide bereavement support for up to 13 months after a loved one passes. We provide our bereavement services to the community. So even if you were never on our hospice and you're having a loss and you need that support, you're able to come to us and we will provide the support to you. We've moved all of our support groups to a Zoom setting like this and we're still holding those three to four times a week different settings for people and that's open to the community. I have to say though I worry. I worry that bereavement will be more complicated than usual because a loved one will feel guilty. We have a mother, her son is in a nursing home, he has COVID-19, she has technically been given permission to come and visit him because it's a compassionate care end of life situation but she is elderly and afraid and is going to decline to make the in-person visit. And I can't even imagine what complicated grief this woman will have with that kind of guilt. And she already felt guilty that he was being cared for in a, a nursing facility. I worry about complicated bereavement for families with all of this. And I worry about trauma for the staff. Do you discuss these notions of grief? Do you bring that to them so they at least have in their mind a sense of what they might personally encounter. I think that's part of all of our staff do a really excellent job of working with the families and kind of explaining various levels of grief and explaining to the families what is available to them to provide that support. And, you know, people don't really, I think right now too, we're still really in the thick of it. I I share what Kathy's concerns are. And I think it won't be until a few months from now when things are somewhat back to normal, that people really get to sit with their feelings of what, they're, what they just went through. Not every family was intact. And this tends to bring, oh my God, all sorts of things to the table. People show up that haven't visited their grandmother in years. And all of a sudden, all these things are just colliding. Where I'm going with this question is in normal days, whatever normal days are, in normal days, you have staff that can sit and talk and interact with family members. How do you even, can you even approach these issues when the family is dysfunctional and now here they go? To go off what you said, it's even more complicated now because the families, people are home. There are outlets that they normally would do. They go to the gym. They are able to go to work. 
everybody's all under the same roof right now. A lot of people aren't working and there's all sorts of added stressors to income and worrying about your own care and are you going to get sick? The social workers are doing a lot of telehealth visits with these to kind of go through it. If it's a situation where we feel like it's a little bit more complicated and they do need that one-on-one time, we are able to send them to provide that support. We recently had a young woman who passed who had a teenage son. The social worker went and did a bereavement visit on the front lawn and one by one had the family members come out six feet apart and provide that support to them because there was a lot of complications in the grief and what was going on and she was able to be there. Telehealth, telemedicine, how is that working out? Most important thing, particularly in the hospice experience, is the one-on-one. People can feel the energy that they can touch each other and hug each other and be there in the same room. That's, that's not the case all the time now. Telehealth, the technology certainly allows us to do things we couldn't have done 10 or 20 years ago, but is there still a huge void in the work that you do? There's pros and cons to it. I, not everybody has access to that type of technology, especially you know the older population. They're not comfortable with that. Still are doing a lot of phone calls versus like FaceTiming or Doxy. I think the staff too, it's a level of comfort, the staff getting used to using that form. They're used to be able to be in person and have those conversations and doing it over the computer or an iPad is certainly challenging. But I think that we're lucky that we're able to even offer that. And families that maybe in the past would decline those extra services because they were working or they're busy, they're now home and able to take advantage of it. Down the road, there might be some silver lining to this, that we're going to become more comfortable with that technology. Right. Maybe people who otherwise would have difficulty accessing, people who live in rural settings, people in inner city settings where they don't have the transportation. I'm hoping it's an and situation and not an or situation for hospice, that maybe we can provide additional touches, additional follow-up. So say the nurse made a visit during the day and... The daughter was very concerned. The social worker could telehealth later in the day, or maybe we could have additional visits that were just sort of a quick check-in, but don't they're not going to ever offer the full physical assessment as well, a demonstration of how to do something um, care-wise for a loved one, and then that personal being with. I like that concept as an add-on. I read some study today that said one of the biggest problems with telemedicine has been actually the doctors and health practitioners are the ones who've been the most resistant. In many settings, patients actually kind of like it. I personally don't like it. Yeah, because we're in a different generation, right? We're in a different generation, and I like that sense. There's a vibration when you're in the same room with somebody. It's easier to do with a patient that I've known for a month of time. But not when somebody's new. You don't know their quirks. You don't know anything. And when you have someone comes in the hospice, this dovetails to the other thought that came to me. It's a shorter stay. So everything is chaotic. And there's almost not the time to do the paperwork before someone dies. I can't imagine being so rushed. Does it become almost too mechanical at times because of the speed that things are happening? It felt very traumatic for the nurses that were going to the hospital, particularly, and seeing the patients there. They were obviously critically ill, COVID positive, so they're isolated on a COVID positive unit. We still didn't know everything about how does it spread, how contagious is it. It was pretty terrifying for them to go onto that unit. 
Were they going to be safe? And then to have the patients die, boom, 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 just admitted, gone, just admitted, gone, just admitted, gone. I had a nurse with over 20 years experience in hospice and she's deals with everything and makes a joke makes light. She's great with the patients and families, but back at the ranch, she makes a joke. She makes light. And she said, this is the first time she's had this much trouble. She said it was, it was too frequent. It was too much. And it was too fast. Do they feel, and I hope they don't, but do they feel like they're not giving what they want to give? One of the common themes we keep hearing is they just feel like they, they're not giving a hundred percent anywhere. They're going in, they're scared, they get on the unit, they do the best they can in the situation, and then they're feeling like they're not being able to give 100% at home. They feel like they weren't giving what they're used to, the level of care, and that the one-on-one, they just felt like that's where it was lacking the most. And how, how deep does it go? Hospice nurses know fully well what they're treating. You said before that they were doing okay, but if we were to take a, a deeper look, are they burning out? Do they need to run away for a while? You said you had the support groups, which are great, just great. But how deep does it go? Some people are having a harder time than others. One of the staff has a problem at home. And to have work be this chaotic and this stressful and this scary and have people die this fast and then have not your normal situation at home, your normal pattern to have things be so different at home, they do feel burned out and they and they need time off. There's really no break from it. You you deal with it at work all day and then you go home and you turn on the news and all you hear about is COVID and your family is affected by it. Maybe your spouse isn't working because of it. Your children are home because of it. So you really just feel like you don't have a break. It's just COVID 24-7. The staff with children are really, it's a huge, huge burden for them to all of a sudden try to be a school teacher. That's been a real challenge for people. And what about the nurse who comes in who is typically used to seeing an older person passing away and now seeing so many younger people being so sick and dying? There are always going to be people in their 40s and 50s and 60s who have cancer, but the shift in population, it takes away from the circle of life that we're used to. Most we have been seeing elderly patients with the COVID. Like you said, we have our normal amount of people, middle-aged people with cancer or another chronic illness, but most of the people that have passed from COVID have been older. So if someone comes into your hospice in the inpatient unit and they have advanced cancer, are they quarantined, so to speak? The family of that person cannot come in because someone down the hall who has COVID? Is the whole building shut down? We had a short period of time, and it's a residential model, so it's like you're in someone's home. And we did have a short period of time where we had some patients who had some kind of possibly infectious process going on with fever. They weren't tested. Some of them came from a hospital setting, which made us really nervous, so we wound up basically quarantining everybody. And that was really rough for, it was rough for the patients, it was rough for the families, it was rough for the staff. And thank goodness we're not in that place now. Everybody is not having an infectious process. They have their normal terminal illness. He's not showing any symptoms. At the time, at this time. A lot of staff have been exposed. A lot of staff have been infected. Some have been 
been infected but not too symptomatic. Some have been mildly ill, some have been moderately ill. Thank goodness no one's been hospitalized or anything like that. But about 50% of our nursing staff, um, nurses and home health aides have been infected. So I was just alluding to the fact that in the medical community now, there's a lot of concern about the asymptomatic cases. There was a study came out, I believe, yesterday showing that something like 40% of the people who are testing positive are asymptomatic. So when you use those numbers like that, it's like, wow, there's a lot of activity out there. So strategically with your staff and the patients you deal with, is there some type of testing process that's going on or has that been requested? It's really hard to test people at home. So like I said, most of our people are at home, in their own home, and then the next biggest arm would be people who live in an assisted living, which is a more home care type environment. And there's a lot of difficulty getting these patients tested. A lot of it has to do with systems that make no sense. I had one patient who was febrile and needed to be tested. She lived in an assisted living. I called the local hospital, but that belonged to a system and they weren't taking any patients who were outside their system. I called the VNA, they couldn't help her because she was on hospice. I called the Board of Health, they don't do that, try her physician. I called her physician, her physician has a nurse practitioner being the the primary care provider and they could not access any tests. So the only option to get this lady tested was to take an essentially bedbound person and put her in an ambulance and take her to a convenient care which seemed it, it, it's not rational. So we choose to keep her at home, keep her comfortable. And at that point, though, we have to presume that she does have it and isolate and wear full PPE. So have you had a great deal of concern amongst your staff about catching? So a lot of people you think have been symptomatic. Has there been a lot of concern? Has there been staff that afraid to come to work? And what steps have you taken to help reassure them? Especially at the beginning, it was very scary. I think we didn't know enough in the medical community about the contagion, the length of time from exposure, what was an exposure. So since we didn't know an awful lot, the fear factor was very, very high. We had several of our home health aides who said that this, I, I can't do it. It's not worth it to me at this point. I'm too afraid that I'm going to get it. And um, we haven't had any nurses who have stopped working, but we've had some who aren't comfortable to go into the hospital, like on a unit where it's all COVID positive and a lot of viral load and, and also aerosolization of the virus from the use of high flow oxygen or nebulizers or something like that. That's definitely been a concern. The way that we've mostly mitigated that is we have made the decision to wear full PPE for all patient encounters. So our staff wears an N95 mask with a surgical mask cover and eye protection, either goggles or a face shield and, and a gown if they're doing any close personal care for all patient visits. That has helped. It sounds. And how do the patients react when, when you show up in that garb? Obviously it's better than nothing. And there's reason for it, but it's kind of like coming in as the uh, the Halloween costume on. Right. It can be very scary, especially for patients who have any kind of cognitive impairment, to see somebody fully gowned up with coveralls and you can only see your eyes and that's it. We had a patient at the hospice home. She made a joke to the nurse that she wouldn't recognize her in heaven unless they both were wearing their masks. Oh. Because they're so used to only seeing that part of them. 
Wow. It, it does take an extra toll, though. Even just physically, people get the stage one areas on their noses. They're very hot. That extra layer is very hot. It's not like a nice cotton breezy linen material that breathes, and it's restrictive. There's talk of a surge. Is hospice prepared for this going on and on? How do you deal with that? We we are prepared insofar as we have been mounting, uh, you know, a stockpile of PPE. We continue to look at our processes and procedures, and quite frankly, we are praying that we're going to have a little respite in July and August so that we can be ready again, because the concern is that we'll have a resurgence and it will coincide with the flu. It'll be hard to know what's what, and every patient will be seen as a possibly infectious person. The level of guard that you have to keep up for that is, is exhausting. You could make a mistake if you're not careful. You could accidentally touch your mask or not take off your gown with clean hands. Or, you know, you could make a little technical mistake in your donning and doffing of your PPE. And when you're exhausted, I think those mistakes are more likely to happen. And then that just increases the anxiety for people. So I think we're ready you know, on the policy procedure. Do we have enough equipment? I think we're ready on all those layers. I really pray that we get a little break, though, so that we can recharge before we have to go into a surge. Agree. Is there a sense of anger amongst the staff that it was initially and may still be, to some degree, difficult to get supplies? Because here's a nurse who goes in, she says, I want to take care of this person. I need this. I need that. And they'll be here tomorrow. Or we only have two for the day. Is there, is there anger at that? Or have people just accepted that as that status quo? If there's anger at, I've certainly heard it in healthcare. You know, and I've heard it in the neighborhood and around. We have literally are blessed with an extremely caring, compassionate group of people. Our director of compliance, our CEO, our director of operations, myself, Sam, the admissions manager. I can't even tell you, probably seven to ten people spent every single moment working on PPE procurement. There was no way we were letting those people go out unprotected. And it has paid off. We've been able to get what they need. And, and they know that. They know that we, we won't ask that of them. I know a nurse working in one of the COVID intensive care units in California. And he said that occasionally they would hear that friends of that nurse would say, oh, you work at the most incredible place in the world. I can't want to be near you because you have to be infected. It's causing a lot of social distancing for a different reason. It is an NP and she does the swabs. You know, mm -hmm. she goes out in the community and she tests her patients. And even though she's very skilled at PPE, she's Ebola certified. She knows what she's doing. When we went to visit my parents socially distancing on the lawn, she wouldn't even go within six feet, even with a mask on, because she's terrified that she would give anything to her grandparents. So is that what you mean? Like even even outside of the yes. restrictions, it's impinging on your life. So it's, it's, it's reverberating through society in more subtle ways than maybe a lot of people are, are doing. There is a question from Megan. Do you require waivers or do mandatory testing on your employees? I'm not sure what you mean by the waiver. If that you're not responsible, if they were to catch the disease, catch COVID? No. We actually assume that if they catch it, it's work-related. 
Do you insist on mandatory testing? No, not at this time. Nursing home staff and nursing home patients in our state are now required. They're requiring that every, uh, it actually had to be completed by the end of May. So every patient had to have a baseline test and staff also had to have a baseline test. And then they're going to require, I believe, weekly testing. Even though we are one of the best states with availability of testing, it is still not available at the level that we need it to be. We haven't had too much trouble getting staff tested through their own PCP or gone to an urgent care mostly. That seems to be the most effective way to get it done. It's always the clinician, the ordering physician or PA or MP's call as to whether or not it's indicated. And a lot of providers wouldn't order it. So we had an aide who was very likely exposed, but because she was, she wasn't seriously ill. She was ill, but she wasn't seriously ill. Her provider wouldn't order her a test. It would have been helpful, one, for us to know, and two, it would have eased her mind. Did she go into isolation? She did. She did, yes. Yeah, so I think probably the physician's explanation would be the test isn't going to prove anything because right, if she showed right. positive, she'd still go into isolation. We had a lot of staff that we, if they had symptoms or or they were exposed and we knew they were and the doctor didn't test them, we still had them quarantined. Absolutely. Related to that, in terms of a lot of your work is done in various facilities, in hospital facilities, or skilled nursing facilities, assisted living. Are there any facilities that won't let your staff in? Yeah, that's a huge problem. It's a huge problem, especially the nursing homes. I think they were so besieged. I I can't even imagine what it was like on the inside of a nursing home. Some of our nursing homes have lost 39 patients, huge, huge, and like an entire floor of human beings that you went there a month before and the nursing home was full. Then you go a month later and a whole entire floor is gone of patients. So they are very reluctant to let... And and these people died without benefit of hospice? Mostly. Because they wouldn't let you in. Or limited, doing through telehealth. Yep. Should you, as a organization, in preparation for the surge, which I hope doesn't show, should you have very definite courses to go and teach nursing home people how to do hospice-like stuff? That's a great idea. One of the nurses who went to the hospital and saw some of those really sick patients who only lived a day or two, she said that one of her visits was dedicated to helping a new nurse who had been floated from another unit and had no experience with respiratory illness. She had no experience. She was a brand new nurse and she had no experience with death and dying. And she did not know how to do some of the things that we needed. And so that was the nurse's role that day was to teach her how to take care of a dying person. So I think that's a great, it's a great idea. It's what we normally do when we're making our in-person visits, but I think that would be a great thing to do in anticipation and as a community partner is to help them to be ready, especially if they can't let us back in. What about in terms of volunteers? Do you work with volunteers? We suspended volunteer services when all of this began to not put them at risk. A lot of them still wanted to do things, though. They didn't want to sit back. Many of them cooked meals to bring up to the hospice home and would leave outside, or they had phone calls. They'd make regular calls to the patients in the facilities, their families to provide support to them. We currently have many volunteers that are crocheting hearts so that family member can have one half of the heart and another one can go to their loved one living in these facilities so they feel like they have a piece of each other. 
their other activities were suspended because of the shortage of the PPE. For someone to be a volunteer and be put in that kind of a risk setting, I think it was just deemed to not be a necessary service at this time. Of course, it's necessary, but maybe not essential. It's not, that's not a good term either. It is absolutely essential. The risk to the person, the volunteer. Lots of our volunteers are in the high risk category for COVID. We had a great story just in the last, just in the last 24 hours of a man who is a social worker at a VA, a local VA, and he's also a volunteer for us. And he's a veteran volunteer, so he makes visits to other veterans. And he is going to see one of the patients in the hospital. The patient is COVID positive and expected to pass within a couple of days from that. We watched him don and doff the PPE. We gave him a competency evaluation. He's going to do it. He's very capable of doing it. So we continue to evaluate. It really is an important thing for this patient to have that acknowledgement before he goes. The reason I asked about the volunteer, Abby, you've done work in hospice, uh, probably as mental health counseling. Yes. yes. And I've done work with hospice, not as a dermatologist, but as a volunteer. I think that was just a great experience. I remember one gentleman, I would go visit him once a week for an hour or two. He said his daughter wanted to speak to me. She was up in New Jersey, so I spoke to her. And I, we didn't have huge conversations, but she said, oh, thank you so much for going. That's the high point of his week. So I bring that up, that the volunteer aspect is, is I think, critically important for many patients. It is yeah. a loss. And we have to kind of look at everything individually at this point. Like this situation, it was okay. And you wouldn't want to lose a volunteer because they went to, right. they caught something right. um, patient there. Well, this has been great. Any, any other questions or comments there? I have a question. What could we do to help mitigate the, the trauma or the, the psychological effects on staff, what they've been going through? There's other things that we should be looking at or considering? That's a very big question, important question. The hospice worker is, I would think, by self-screening of the job that they go into, not the average person. Not everybody can do hospice work. So it, it would require some time to spend privately with them and then conjointly so they know they're not alone to explore how they're dealing with the harsh reality of this. And I find it very helpful. You have to sit and get to know a person. It's just not 10 steps that you can do to make you feel better. Right. Not that simple. We're talking about a human being who is helping another human being go through a phase of life that is the one common denominator for all of us. It's not my place to talk about religion and spirituality, but I've always regarded hospice work as God's work. And not to feel that they're failing. They're limited, but not of any self-imposed choice. They have to be stronger, and we have to help them be stronger. I know it sounds very trite as I'm saying all this. We can't hold their hand, literally, but we can hold their hand emotionally, spiritually, and help them rise to understand and appreciate what an amazing thing they are trying to do, and they are helping. And there is going to be no way that we can get out of their mind that some of these people are going to die alone because that's what happened. So we have to be the community to help them and, again, hold them, comfort them. It's hard, but the work is hard. And if they didn't go through it feeling something like this, I don't think they'd be a hospice worker in the first place. Right. So it's hard. I would like to see 
more people think about hospice. I, I think it's not spoken about enough in the world and the great work that's done. I personally want to say thank you to you ladies for being with us and, and not sitting in South Florida in an amazing rainstorm. Yes, thanks so much. This has been a great discussion. I think we've really uncovered a lot of important issues here. So thanks, everyone, for watching. We will be back in a few weeks with some more mental health perspectives. Take care now. Thank you. Take care.